Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. The conventional narrative of American space exploration traces government efforts during the Cold War, with today's private efforts regarded as a recent phenomenon riding on the coattails of NASA's achievements. But today's guest argues that private funding for space exploration goes back more than a century before Apollo. To get a better context for what's happening in space today, I brought on Alex McDonald. Alex is the chief economist at NASA and author of The Long Space Age, The Economic Origins of Space Exploration from Colonial America to the Cold War. Alex, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks, Jim. Pleasure to be here. The conventional, I think, narrative of the history of America and space, they would say it begins in 1957, I think, with Sputnik. And that narrative revolves around stuff Washington did, stuff government did. Uh, but in your book, it's a you give a deeper, longer richer uh, a narrative that that sure is about what we did in the in the in the Cold War and the space race, but there's a lot more to America and space than that. There absolutely is. So depending on how you want to look at it, you can think of the beginning of space exploration as really beginning with astronomy. And of course, there's a way of thinking about that as uh, a method by which we extended our vision into the sky and were able to explore new worlds. This was certainly what Galileo did uh, when he noticed that there were craters on the moon uh, in the 1600s and noticed that there were uh, moons orbiting the planet Jupiter. But you can also think about it as a, as a way of uh, investing in space exploration technology. Because by the time you get to the 19th century, large telescopes are hundreds of millions of dollars, and in some cases, even, even a billion dollars in today's terms. And in the 19th century, the United States was in fact the leading investor in astronomical telescope equipment. But the people who were making these investments were private individuals. They were uh, James Lick, the wealthiest man in California in the 1870s. They were Andrew Carnegie, and they were the foundation that had been funded by John D. Rockefeller in the early 20th century. And this emerged out of a really strong social movement that actually began uh, in the mid 19th century. In fact, uh, one of my favorite presidents, John Quincy Adams, is credited with uh, starting this in some ways because he used his first inaugural address to Congress, amazingly enough, to advocate for the need for a federal observatory. And at the time, Congress actually disagreed pretty strongly did not appropriate any funds, but that didn't stop, stop John Quincy Adams. He continued to advocate for it privately uh, and a number of private individuals, uh, my favorite one being Ormsby McKnight Mitchell, who's got a classic 19th century American name. Uh, he travels around the country giving lectures in Cincinnati, uh, in Albany, and there they build large telescopic observatories using public subscription, voluntary uh, contributions from the citizens of those cities and they actually built some of the largest telescopes in the world. Uh, and so that's really the original model, I would argue, 
of space exploration in the United States. And, and it actually extends to the early development of liquid fuel rocketry. Uh, because while Robert Goddard did receive uh, a large portion of his funding for the first development of the very first liquid fuel rocket to ever fly uh, in the 1920s, uh, the major funder through his entire career was the Guggenheim family. Again, a private source of wealth that was investing in this activity at the time essentially for philanthropic reasons. So. Um, when we think about the, the current rise of privately funded space activities, uh, which I think now we're really quite familiar with uh, in terms of the, the space developments of people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, um, I'd argue that this isn't so much a new phenomenon. This is actually, in, in many respects, a return to, to one of the origins of space flight here in this country. National pride was a hallmark of the space race and the subsequent space exploration missions. Was that also a factor when 19th century America was building those observatories? Were we trying to prove ourselves as a young nation with investments in astronomy? Absolutely. And in fact, you see that type of national pride in both the, uh, you know, John Quincy Adams uh, pitch to Congress for a federal national observatory. Um, he, in fact, uh, would point to all of the observatories in Europe. Uh, at the time, there were dozens of observatories in Europe, and he made that point to Congress that all other major countries of the world are contributing to this important science, and, and here in the United States at the time, you know, we were not. But it actually comes uh, across even more incredibly and, and, and more amazingly uh, in the story of the Cincinnati Observatory, which was promoted by Ormsby McKnight Mitchell, and he gives a series of lectures in Cincinnati in the 1840s. And they're very inspiring. He's a bit of a kind of Carl Sagan of his day, if you will. And he ends his lectures by making a call to the citizens of Cincinnati to fund what he you know, pitches as being the world's largest telescope. And he argues, literally, that because we are a republic, uh, there are no kings or queens to fund large telescopes, as was the case. In, in Europe at the time. And he says, uh, we need to show the Tsar of Russia uh, that here in this Republican country, uh, you know, small, small R Republican, um, you know, the citizens will become the patrons of science and that we will become uh, the most successful patrons of science. And, and although the citizens of Cincinnati do not in fact raise enough money to build the largest telescope in the world, they do actually raise enough money to import from Germany one of the top refractors and have for a significant period of time, uh, the second or third largest refractor in the world for use of the citizens, for the members of the Cincinnati Astronomical Society. Uh, a really unique development and I think a very kind of uh, American one at that. But once again, he made, the, he made the appeal on this national pride element. And, and so I think there really is this way in which spaceflight signals not just our own personal ambitions, but the, you know, the aspirations and the value sets of, of the nation and communities as a whole. I find that especially interesting because as the private sector has become involved currently in a way that it wasn't you know, during Apollo, I think some people, they don't like that. They find it maybe like tawdry, like it's like the private sector is an area where it shouldn't be. It shouldn't really be in this. This, this is inherently a, a, like a public good. It's a government effort. But yet, the, really, the story you're telling is that from the very beginning, America and space, it was, it was viewed as sort of 
not not a Washington thing, but a, a Republic thing, a, a citizen thing. And even if some of those citizens were fairly wealthy. Yeah, I think that's really true. I, I do think one of the things that has changed is that, you know, in the 19th century, these large astronom astronomical observatories were essentially nonprofit activities. They were uh, monuments, either to communities or to individuals. And I think one of the things that has, has demonstrably changed uh, is that now private space flight is in fact a way of, of making money. Uh, you know, when I started working at NASA in uh, 2008, there was the standard uh, joke that, that everyone uh, in the space industry has heard, and I'm sure you have too, uh, which is that if you want to uh, become a millionaire in the space industry, start as a billionaire. And you know, that, that joke doesn't work anymore because increasingly we're now seeing individuals who are making an incredible amount of money in the rise of commercial space activities. And that really is new. And so, you know, all new things um, you know, go through a phase where people are not entirely sure what to make of it all. Um, but what it's resulting in is an incredible dynamism where we are now being able to procure services for things like human spaceflight and to even procure services for delivering cargo to the lunar surface. Uh, that have the potential to transform the economics of these activities. Uh, and so we are going through an incredible period of dynamism by really marrying up uh, these, you know, I'd kind of say three different motives, right? The, the kind of signaling motive of, of, of the nation state, uh, the intrinsic motivation of individuals uh, who want to see uh, an expansion of, of space science and, and, and of human spaceflight experience, uh, and also the profit motive. Um, and, and I think these things are really combining in a, in, a, in a genuinely unique way that we didn't actually see in the 19th century or the 20th century. Really. You gave a really a fantastic uh, a TED talk, a little bit about the history of sort of of the moon and science fiction about the moon. And what I found interesting is that there was a period in the uh, in the 16th century, people started writing about going to the moon. And what was interesting is, is that they started writing about it in at least as best they could a scientific way. They tried to think of contraptions, they get to the moon, they, so they weren't relying on magic. But then that stopped. As, as we learned a little bit more about gravity and vacuum, we stopped writing those kinds of stories and the stories became more fanciful again. But then as you mentioned, during the Industrial Revolution, we started figuring stuff out. We started figuring new ways to produce energy and uh, we started learning about pressure and pressure chambers and how to deal with vacuums. And we started writing again about, Lisa, again, as best we could, scientific ways of getting to the moon. Did that sort of reawakening play, it, play any kind of influence in sort of the interest in astronomy and building telescopes in the 19th century? Yeah, I think you really summarized that perfectly. Um, in the 1610s, uh, the telescope is invented. And then in the 1630s, a number of writers emerge who uh, come up with these narratives and, and these scientific evaluations of how you might travel into space. And you know, these aren't really small figures. One of the most uh, well-known ones is John Wilkins. Uh, he's the founder of the Royal Society in uh, Great Britain at the time. And there is this flowering of thought on spaceflight. Uh, but then as the discovery of the vacuum really comes to be understood, people realize that a condition of vacuum exists between the Earth and the moon, and, and there aren't really ways of thinking about getting there. And so in the Industrial Revolution, uh, a lot of the technologies that allow you to think about spaceflight come online. Um, 
the most obvious one being pressure vessels. Um, the other relevant ones being essentially large armaments. Um, it's not a coincidence that when Jules Verne um, talks about the technology for traveling to the moon in his very well-known book, uh, From the Earth to the Moon, uh, that he essentially has the uh, protagonists being essentially underemployed armaments makers in the United States after the Civil War, who had incredible uh, capabilities for developing large cannons, and they thought they might put it to a different use, uh, a, a type of swords into plowshares initiative uh, in the United States in, in, in the 19th century. And this results in uh, a real explosion of stories about traveling into space. Um, Jules Verne's From There to the Moon is written in the 1860s, but also written in the 1860s is the story of the Brick Moon by uh, a Massachusetts uh, pastor and writer, Edward Everett Hale. And he writes this first story about living on a space station. Uh, he also, uh, with his uh, brother, while they're students at Harvard, basically come up with a concept for what today we would call a GPS system. Um, all of these things are, are in the culture and in the literature, and perhaps the most striking combination of these two themes of uh, science fiction and astronomy uh, is the uh, story of Percival Lowell. And Percival Lowell builds a Lowell Observatory, uh, which later uh, in the 20th century, the planet Pluto is discovered, I should say the dwarf planet Pluto. He is motivated by this idea of canals on Mars, which had been essentially kind of emerging as a, as a culture topic because of a mistranslation of uh, Giovanni Schiaparelli's uh, Italian word canale, uh, by which he meant channels, and which gets translated into English as canals. Um, but Lowell sees these things, and he writes these books, like Mars and Abode of Life, and all of these popular culture um, works that expand the idea of, of you know, a, a purported hypothetical Martian civilization, which of course gives further uh, energy to the space flight, uh, you know, movement overall. And so, uh, you know, that, that intertwining of, of astronomy and space flight ambition uh, really is there in the 19th century. And of course it, it continues up to the present day. Uh, the James Webb Space Telescope, of course, is one of the most exciting projects of, of our time. Uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to, to take off some some time from work, take some leave, and actually go down to French Guiana to, uh, to watch the launch. And it was an amazing moment. But one of the reasons it's so amazing is because depending on, on how well it works and depending on whether you know, we get the kind of um, you know, uh, star shade out there as well, we may be able to uh, detect uh, biosignatures right, around other, other uh, planets, around other stars. And, and if we do that, and we find some planets that have biosignatures within you know, let's call it a few tens of light years. That's going to be incredible motivate, an incredible motivation for decades to come for people to think about designing systems. So uh, the intertwining of astronomy and space flight continues strong today. In in the book, you you kind of give this deeper history. But for most people, certainly the you know the the anchor in their minds is Apollo, which is a premier achievement uh, of NASA. It's one of the premier achievements of the United States of America. But was that such kind of an anomaly? That model is kind of unhelpful now, as far as thinking about as we think about space and what and what the model should look like going forward. That we're still too much trapped in this amazing achievement, um, and we are maybe slow to to break out of that model. So what I would say is not that it's um, 
unhelpful, but that it's incomplete, right? Um, I actually still think it is helpful because it's important to remember that the predominant source of funding for space exploration to this day uh, remains uh, you know, the taxpayer dollar, right? It remains um, you know, governmental appropriations. And it's important to not lose sight of that because at a certain level, right, um, you know, the taxpayer is the customer. And you know, we have to ensure that we are still delivering uh, important national programs that are of genuine national and public value, right? Um, because that's the equation uh, that has allowed us to make the progress we have. And I actually think there's a, a huge lesson to be learned, not just from Apollo, but from how the space shuttle was agreed to. And when you look at the way in which, you know, the Nixon administration, which made the initial decision on proceeding with the space shuttle, uh, they essentially recognized that uh, now humans were flying in space and they will be flying in space regardless of what the United States does. And therefore we'd best be part of it. And we'd best support that capability to ensure that the US and its citizens continue to be uh, at that time, you know, essentially solely in low earth orbit. Um, and as a result, we have uh, you know, created the capabilities over decades that now the private sector is able to build on and is able to innovate with, right? The workforce of, of tens of thousands of trained aerospace engineers and human spaceflight engineers and technicians across the country uh, was the foundation for uh, companies like SpaceX uh, who were able to draw upon that uh, in order to now innovate in, in new ways to, to, to hopefully here lay a new foundation for uh, a new set of space capabilities. So what was incomplete, I think, about the solely Apollo model um, was that it, it didn't, that model does not allow for the intrinsic motivations of individuals, and specifically the intrinsic motivations of highly capitalized individuals to be able to make serious progress. Um, you know, I mentioned uh, James Lick is one of the funders of large telescopes in the 19th century. So he was the wealthiest man in California in the 1870s. He'd made all his money in property rights speculation uh, around the California gold rush. And he gave 17.5% of his entire estate to a single project of space exploration, which was the Lick Observatory, uh, the really first mountaintop observatory built, which to this day actually is still operational and, and finds a significant number of exoplanets. So if the wealthiest man in California today or let's expand that and say, you know, maybe the wealthiest man in, in, in Austin or the wealthiest man in, uh, in, in, in Seattle, um, if they spent 17.5% of, of their estate at current market values, folks like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk are somewhere in the $150 billion range. So 17.5% of their wealth, a number for which we have a historical precedence of individuals spending on a single project of space exploration, um, each of them could fund a $20 billion project in space exploration. That is, a, that is a massive potential contribution in the system. And of course, you could argue in fact that they're making that exact contribution presently. Um, the Apollo model doesn't allow for that. It doesn't allow for a, a more complex economic ecosystem. And so frankly, that's why we at NASA have, have really shifted into a way of thinking about space development um, as a sort of meta public private partnership, right? Uh, you know, there is no such agreement that you can get at NASA called a public private partnership, right? There's a different set of contractual mechanisms by which we have been making this transition 
to a much more vibrant economic ecosystem than we had enjoyed, let's say, in the latter part of, of the 20th century. So uh, I think it, Apollo really still is a model. Uh, I think the Artemis uh, program really has been able to coalesce because we have learned the lessons of Apollo and continue um, to apply the most relevant parts of that model. At the same time, we've also learned the lessons of you know, the private sector uh, space capability revolution, if you will, and learn to leverage these new emerging capabilities to enable us to achieve a sustained return to the moon um, here uh, for much lower cost than we would be able to otherwise. The other economic aspect, which is pretty darn important, is just how much the whole thing costs to get from here to up there. I, I think that's that declining cost, and what we talk about for a moment, to me is an unbelievably underreported story when we talk about what's going on in America, are we innovative? That seems like it's a very big innovation uh, that it's much easier, much cheaper to get stuff into orbit. Uh, and for a long time, it seems like those costs were stuck and then they went down by a lot. Am I right? That's pretty important. Oh, it's incredibly important. The change in launch costs, right, which have improved by a factor of five or 10, depending on how you want to look at it. That scale of change has enabled the type of growth of capability and the, and the growth of companies that, that we're now seeing. But equally important and more important um, is the transformation in uh, the cost of small satellite capabilities. Uh, the improvement there actually um, is arguably in, you know, factor of a hundred, right? Relative to the amount that it costs you to build a high resolution telescope and put it in, in low earth orbit, right? Those, those used to be hundreds of millions to billions and today are now in the you know, millions to tens of millions, right? Um, that's an even more transformative change that we've been seeing. And so these two um, trends together is what's resulting in the current you know, explosion of, of private capital that's now moving into the space industry. Again, you, you, you gave this wonderful talk uh, about the impact of culture on innovation, and it, but it's really kind of a, a symbiotic relationship because as we mentioned, the culture can get people excited about innovation, but the innovation and the science can sometimes change how the culture talks about, thinks about these, uh, these issues. My concern that we are not creating the kinds of stories about the future that will inspire people to, in try, to try to invent that future. It's not a, they're not telling them stories about a future they'd really want to live in. And some people, they'll say like, well, why is that even, you know, they're just stories, why is that important? Why is it important that we have stories that show us a future worth building? Yeah, it's, a, it's an issue close to my heart as, as obviously it, it is for you. You know, the stories that we tell each other, they obviously plant ideas. They also inspire. But what they, they can really sometimes do is, is give people motivation and even purpose for why they should be undertaking maybe a decade of hard research and labor and risk because they, they lay out a potential place that you can get to a narrative place and in many respects spaceflight is 
really one of these most classic examples. For literally hundreds of years, spaceflight was only a story that we told each other about a possible future that we could enjoy. When Jules Verne is writing from the Earth to the Moon in 1865, he is showing a future that could exist and in fact, ultimately came to pass. He wrote about three people launching from Florida on a trip to the moon that took about a week. He tells the story of Apollo about a hundred years before it happens. And the story that he told directly inspired many of the people who then helped make it happen. He inspired Robert Goddard in the US, but he also inspired Hermann Oberth in Germany, who in turn inspired von Braun. And Jules Verne also directly inspired Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, who is the sort of uh, father of Russian spaceflight. And so the way in which these stories uh, shape the future is, is kind of both profound, but also um, you know, frustratingly imprecise, right? It's hard to ever know in the mind of, of, of another human how a particular story influenced them. And, you know, we, we often think about the way in which, you know, a, a, a dystopian story uh, might influence folks. A lot of folks who write dystopian stories or make movies about them suggest that they're making these stories to, you know, uh, dissuade folks from uh, allowing that future to come to pass. On the other hand, um, you know, if you watch enough Blade Runner, you kind of think that it might look kind of cool and maybe that makes you okay with a Blade Runner type of dystopian future. Um, we don't really understand these things quite well yet. And I actually think it's a huge area of research to think about how narratives shape human behavior. But we do know enough to know that they really profoundly do. The stories that we uh, tell ourselves shape our own activities. And that's really true at, at a cultural scale. And, and thankfully, actually, we're seeing, I think, uh, a resurgence in understanding of this. Neil Stevenson uh, kind of was one of the first people to really uh, highlight this as an important factor uh, of telling positive stories about the future. Um, I think Kim Stanley Robinson uh, is one of the other ones. I think his most recent book, Ministry for the Future, um, is really a direct attempt to, uh, to tell a story about how we might actually you know, encounter the climate changes that we know are coming and actually surmount them as a species, as a civilization. Um, and so I think people are starting to see that, that we need to tell better stories. And, and you know, my hope is that, that you know, we tell stories that include a future where humanity travels out into the cosmos and learns as much from other planets in our solar system as we have learned from this one. Alex, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey, thanks. It's been a real pleasure. 